we're going to be in um, Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11 tonight. Um, so we began a vision in Ezekiel chapter 8. So before we jump into 10, just want to remind you what, uh, what we read last time in Ezekiel chapter 8. It said, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. I looked, and behold, the form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire. Above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand. He took me by a lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So last time we saw, right, Remember, part of the deal with Ezekiel, Ezekiel stays in his house unless the word of the Lord comes to him. The word of the Lord comes to him, he's going to come out, he's going to present whatever it is that the Lord has given him to the people, and the people will listen and receive what he has to say. Now, you remember last time, he went, we still are dealing with, among the exiles, the feeling that they are forsaken, They were the group that are being judged for the wickedness of the nation. And so a lot of Ezekiel is going to be focused on the idea that that's not true. Have you ever felt like something you were experiencing, some some difficulties, perhaps an illness or a struggle just in life was was somehow God's judgment on you, God's getting you for, for something you've done wrong in your past? When we feel that way, there's no guarantee that you are correct. One of the things um, Hebrews talks about, in Hebrews uh, um, chapter 12, it talks about this idea of going through difficulties and thinking about it as in terms of discipline from the Lord. And so when we think about discipline, you and I think about I'm getting a whooping because that's how discipline worked in our life. But if you've done time in the military, if you served in one of the armed forces, you you may understand a a different idea of discipline. It's not always something that is uh, uh, a punishment, but it's a preparation, training. So when the Bible talks about we look at the things that happen in our life, we need to recognize that those are ways in which God is preparing us. The word used for that is the word discipline, not beating, prep, training, preparation. Now you have these people in exile who think in their mind, we're the forsaken of the Lord, our lives are over, what do we really have to live for? And you have the people in Jerusalem who agree with them. The people in Jerusalem say, whew, so glad I'm not those guys. Those must be the really wicked people that God is putting in slavery. We are the righteous, we are the good. Both of them were wrong. So Ezekiel is taken in a vision, right? He's grabbed by his hair. I remember last time I said Ezekiel has some of the wildest experiences with God ever. So to me, that's a wild explanation. The the Lord comes to me. You have descriptions of the Lord in two different forms. You have the Spirit of God and you have a man, right? You have the man there. Uh, The Bible, the Old Testament in particular, doesn't develop... um, harsh distinctions, but you'll see a plurality within the Godhead. And it's going to be expressed again in chapter 10 and 11. And the, and the man, he grabs a hold of Ezekiel by the hair, and the Spirit carries him to, to uh, Jerusalem. 
Now, I don't know, maybe because I'm visual, but it looks like you're getting drugged by your hair someplace. I don't, I don't know another way to see it. And Kathy is skiing today, so she can't give me a better vision. Usually she's like the, oh, this is what it was like. It looks like this, and I don't have that. I don't have that current voice in my mind. So Ezekiel brought before Jerusalem. He sees all the abominations in the temple, all the wickedness of the people. We looked at that last time in chapters 8 and 9. In 10 and 11, it's a continuation. This is the same vision. Uh, we're going to see the culmination, the end of this vision in chapter 11. But now in chapter 10, we'll see the beginning of the glory departing from Jerusalem. The kavod. The, the kavod is the, the weight, the glory, the, the, the essence of God that dwelt there in the temple. That was the smoke that would drive the worshippers out of the temple when the Spirit of God entered into the temple. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. So I want you to, what he's seeing, he's, he's there at Jerusalem, he's at the temple, he's, he's seeing that same throne chariot we had in chapter 1. So he sees the four cherubim, the wheels within the wheels. We're going to see all that again. And the throne on top. Remember we talked about last time, that's the throne chariot. So you have a throne sitting there above the cherubim. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from beneath the cherubim and scatter them over the city. Now, I don't want you to miss this. And he, who? He said to the man. Now, typically when we do Bible study and we find a pronoun we don't know where to put it, we go back to the nearest antecedent. And when we go back to the nearest antecedent here in this section of Scripture, we end up all the way back to, to chapter 8. We go all the way, and it's the man in chapter 8. And what we have here is the voice of God, and we have um, representations of God, a man with legs of of, of burnished metal, he's gleaming, you have the Spirit of God, we're going to see a couple others as we continue, but he's going to say to him, hey, go in among the whirls, the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with the coals, and scatter them over the city. And so he went in before my eyes. So, again, we have what in Old Testament theology is called two, uh, two powers language. So what I mean by two powers is the Bible very clearly teaches there's one Yahweh. But you have that expressed in what is often pictured as Yahweh in flesh and Yahweh in spirit. And so you'll have each of these represented. And if you'll look as we go through 10 and 11, you'll see this same thing taking place here. Uh, the spirit that carried him to Jerusalem, now speaking about the glory of God over the cherubim, and then giving commands uh, to the man of God standing there. So you have three uh, examples. You're going to have a man, you're going to have a spirit, and you're going to have a glory, all in these two chapters. Each one's going to be referred to as Yahweh. So we have, and they're all there present at the same time, and they're all at least visually distinct. You guys get what I'm saying? So you have one who carried Ezekiel there, right? You have one who's speaking, you have you have the glory that's going to go and settle on the throne. So we have all of these things going on at the same time. Now, he's told to go get these coals. Usually, when we saw, like in Isaiah chapter 6, the coal was used for purification. 
But in this case, if you remember last week when we looked at this prophetically, remember the man was told to write down, they marked all the faithful, you remember? He marked the faithful uh, and delivered the wicked for judgment. And so it's not purification. Now, uh, this is a, a symbol of judgment. The, the coals are spread, uh, signifying that the city is going to burn. And so this is a vision that Ezekiel's having in Jerusalem while he's sitting at home in a refugee camp outside of Babylon at the Kabar Canal. So he goes on. He says, now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in. And the cloud filled the inner court and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And so you see, you'll see these uh, different manifestations, right, of uh, the one God of Israel. And for those uh, rabbis, all the way to about, <coughs> you're probably looking at the second, uh, maybe the second century AD, you start to have a shift in rabbinical thought. But all the stuff we look at prior to that, they use this idea of the two powers in heaven language. Yahweh distinct in other ways, right? A man, spirit, the glory. A man, the spirit, the glory. Gathered here <clears throat> in one place, uh, giving this vision to Ezekiel. Now look, he goes on. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And the cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen who took it and went out. So you have these, these cherubim. The man in linen walks to where the cherubim are. Remember the cherubim are where each of the four wheels are. Wherever the cherubim goes, the chariot goes. They all go together. They don't have to turn. They just change that direction. We, that all goes back to chapter 1. And as he's, as he's doing this, he goes, the cherubim get the coals from between the wheels, not coals from the altar. That's a distinction between this and Isaiah. Isaiah was coals of the altar that purged the lips of Isaiah. You remember? Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And he comes in, and he says, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and the Lord has one of the cherubim take a coal, touch his lips. And he says, your sins are purged. Now, in this case, it's not coming from the altar. This is coming from beneath the chariot, the throne chariot of God. And so the man clothed in linen takes it, and he delivers the judgment that goes forth. In verse 8, it says, Now the cherubim appear to have the form of a human hand under their wings. So, We've, saw, we've seen six wings. So usually every picture of an angel never looks like an angel in the Bible. <laughs> Just not, not, at least not the way the Bible describes them. So you've got six wings, four faces. It's a, it's a little different, right? At least the throne guardian angels, the cherubim. That's what cherubim means, uh, throne guardian. Just as an aside, cherubim, that is <clears throat> Chaldean. Seraphim is Egyptian. They're both the same being. 
Cherubim and seraphim, it's just different languages, but they both refer to the throne guardians. It's the four living creatures around the throne of God. Every time you see the throne of God, you see the Bible describes them as the four living creatures. Cherubim and seraphim, just two different languages describing the same beings. Now, they have a hand. So you ask yourself, we have six wings. Did he stick a wing in and grab the coal? No, he used a hand. So he put a hand in grabbed the coal, and gave it to the man clothed in linen. Now, it goes on describing, again, it's going to describe this throne chariot that we've seen in chapter 1. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. So the idea is it's gleaming metal. Like if you take molten metal, super hot, that's the color of barrel. So the wheels look like molten metal there beside the the cherub, and as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if a wheel were within a wheel. <clears throat> so we have the same description we saw in chapter 1. Throne guardian of God, when he came and he called Ezekiel and he said, Ezekiel, you're going to be my prophet to the exiles. So he's seeing the throne chariot, the same throne chariot he saw at the Kabar Canal. He's now been taken uh, in the spirit to Jerusalem. He sees that same throne chariot. At the south entrance. Why is that important? If you remember last week, at the north entrance, there was the, the, the uh, what do they call it? The idol of jealousy. There was the idols that were placed there in the temple. So inside the temple grounds, the throne chariot is as far away from the north side where that idol is as, as he can be and still be within the grounds. So on the far south, we have the chariot gathered Wheels within wheels. We've seen this stuff before. If you have questions about it, take a look at uh, our first chapter stuff out of Ezekiel. Then he goes on in verse 11. And when they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And the whole body, the rims, their spokes, the wings, the wheels were full of eyes all around. The wheels that had... Uh, the wheels that the four of them had. So you have same description. So we, we've got like word for word, chapter 1, chapter 10, throne guardian of God. Everywhere the cherubim fly, the throne goes. No turning, they just go in a direction in that way. Um, you're going to see a description of their faces. We saw their four faces in chapter 1. There's a difference here. Uh, uh, in the description of the four faces, but each face faces a particular direction. So depending on which way the throne chariot is pointed depends on which face is in front when the angels are described. Depends on what direction they're moving in. So uh, we'll see that uh, right here in verse 13. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And every, one of, and every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, the second human, the third lion, the fourth eagle. So we see four faces again, but one of the faces earlier in chapter 1 was a bull. And now that is described as the face of a cherub. So, you know, none of us know what the face of a cherub looks like. The assumption would be from the text that a cherub face and the bull's face or the oxen were... The described the same way. So, and that face is the direction that uh, that these are facing as they're there in the south, 
as Ezekiel is watching, as the glory is preparing to depart. It says, now the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kabar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. They, uh, when they stood still, they stood still. When they mounted up, they mounted up. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Exactly the same description we see again in chapter 1. Now in verse 18, he begins. Now the, the, throne, uh, gar, uh, the throne guardians and the throne, a chariot throne has been described. Now he's going to turn his attention to the glory of God we, that we saw at the beginning. The glory of God that was there in the presence. In verse 18 it says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the Lord and stood over the cherubim. <clears throat> so we had a voice coming from the throne speaking to the man clothed in linen, calling the man clothed in linen to go and gather coals from beneath. He does so. Now the glory, the kabod, the weightiness of God, the cloud, the smoke is moving from where God would be in the temple uh, to gather over top of the, of the throne chariot of God. The idea here is that <clears throat> Yahweh is prepared for departure. The prophet is watching as the kabod rises. It comes up from the door. It moves to the throne chariot where it's parked. And it rests above the cherubim. Um, and as they are prepared together with their divine cargo ready to take, we're going to see the illustration that goes in opposition to the view that the people had that were in Jerusalem. The people living in Jerusalem were like, we're God's favorite. He's never going to let anything happen to the city. God lives here. He dwells here. And the vision that Ezekiel is going to see is God doesn't dwell here anymore. He's left. He has left the building. He is now on the chariot. And we're going to see him depart out of the eastern gate. Now, for me, this is one of those things, you know, that does not specifically describe in Scripture. But to me, everything gets a little more interesting when I realize that when Jesus Christ comes as the Messiah, he enters in to the temple area to cleanse the temple from the eastern gate. The same gate that the glory is going to depart. He comes in, he cleanses the temple for four days, he's examined ultimately rejected, he is arrested and crucified, <clears throat> right? And then he is buried, he rises again, and we have that whole uh, description that Jesus gives to the people where he begins by saying, this is my father's house, and my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. But when he leaves it, he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. So to me, it's, it's a similar picture of the glory of God departing the temple. We come to the New Testament. What is God's temple? Does God need a building in Jerusalem anymore? Does he need some kind of, of place where people go to gather to, to, to be able to have a relationship with him? According to the New Testament, what does it say? <clears throat> it says that our bodies are the temple of God, right? That Jesus, when he died and was buried and rose again, that part of what he accomplished was 
creating within you and I through regeneration a sacred space where the Spirit of God can dwell, right? So that when, we put our, when we're justified by faith, we put our trust in Christ, the Spirit of the living God is able to move inside of us. And so Paul would say, don't, don't you know your body is the temple of God? So that these are the, the pictures, right, that we see as, as God is developing them here in Ezekiel and, uh, and accomplishing this goal. So you have right here the prophet watching the glory of God as it prepares to, to leave. Uh, Jerusalem. In verse 19 it says, And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before the eyes as they went out and the wheels beside them and they stood at the entrance of the east gate. So now they've moved from as far south from that eye, as far away from the idol as they can get. Now they're headed to the exit. Now they're headed toward the east gate. Uh, They stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Now these were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kabar Canal. And I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces. Each had four wings. And underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces uh, whose appearance I had seen by the Kabar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. So you have the, the, the clarity, hopefully, as we come to the end of chapter 10... Here's what's going on. This is what the scripture is talking about. This is a throne chariot of God. This is the glory of God on the throne chariot. Standing beside Ezekiel is another representation of God, right? Who carried him there in the spirit, brought him into Jerusalem, who is also the one through whom he's going to be receiving the instruction that's going on as a part of the vision. It continues as we go down into chapter 11. So he says, the spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord. So wherever Ezekiel is standing, now the same, the same spirit that brought him to Jerusalem brings him to the east gate. It's not, it's not a great journey, right? You know, you're, you're able to see it, but it is nonetheless a spiritual expression that's taking place. So the spirit of God lifts him up, the spirit of Yahweh, while the glory of Yahweh is on the throne, all of this is Yahweh expressing his departure in Jerusalem. All of these things are why we have doctrines like we talk about when we talk about the Trinity. We're just trying to express what we're reading, to be able to express what we see. So you see this this, uh, multiplicity of God. Nobody's saying these are three gods or four gods. Everybody's saying this is one God being expressed in this way. And so you have Yahweh expressing, Yahweh speaking to Ezekiel and declaring these things uh, before him. It says, Now, and behold, at the entrance of the gateway there were 25 men. And I saw among them Jaazaniah, the son of Azur, Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, These are the men who devise iniquity, who give wicked counsel in the city, who say, the time is not near to build houses, and two, the city is a cauldron and we are the meat. Now for you and I, these two idioms, figures of speech, don't carry a lot of meaning, right? The time is not near to build houses, what's that mean? Or the city is the cauldron and we're the meat. Uh, I don't understand. Doesn't seem good. You know, any different than if we were standing with them and we told them it was raining cats and dogs. 
they would say, I don't see cats or dogs. What are you talking about? So we have here Hebrew idioms. These Hebrew idioms are going to be uh, um, part of the uh, uh, words of expression that they were giving to tell the people we're favored of God. God took the bad people out in the exiles. And now we are the remnant. We are the holy ones. Somehow man always has a way to make that assumption of himself. I'm the holy one. Everyone else has the problem. Right? Have you ever talked to somebody who's been married five times? You talk to somebody who's been married five times and you go, wow, what, what happened in your first marriage? Well, you wouldn't believe how they treated me. What happened in your second marriage? Well, they did this. Or with third marriage, then this, and they did that, and the fourth. At some point, you should start to think, maybe I'm part of the problem. No? Or just everybody's bad and you're good. This is how Jerusalem is picturing the things they're experiencing. It's everybody else's fault. In politics, don't we see that every day if you turn on the news? Every single Democrat will say it's a Republican's fault. Every single Republican will say it's a Democrat's fault. Everybody's so busy pointing fingers at everybody else, nothing gets done. Or at least nothing good. So we have the same thing going on here. These guys have these two idioms. That, now here's what specifically what God says. He says they devise mischief. They are, they are leading people to sin. Now what is the sin that they are being led into? To disregard or disbelieve, not believe the word of God. Jeremiah is in the city of Jerusalem, right? We just went through Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in the city delivering the word of God to the people of God. But rather, everyone else is saying, Jeremiah is crazy. Don't listen to that guy. And these were the leaders of the nation who are leading the people down a path of destruction. And so the Lord says to Ezekiel, these are the guys. These are the ones. They are devising mischief, iniquity. They give wicked counsel. They give the opposite word of whatever God says. And finally, <clears throat> they are denying the prophecy of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 37, verse 6, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus you will say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to go back to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans will come back and fight against this city. They will capture it, burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh. Do not deceive yourself, saying the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you uh, should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, Every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn the city with fire. So Jeremiah the prophet is saying, this: God's judgment is coming. They're not leaving, but the people in the city are lying to the people. Now, the reason why this is so heartbreaking is because when you get to the end of the book of Jeremiah, you see, you see parents eating their children's bodies because they listened to these men who were their leaders, who told them, don't worry about it, it's okay, God's going to deliver us. 
You don't ever have to worry about this. Meanwhile, Jeremiah is going, you need to surrender. If you continue to fight, you'll all die here. So these guys, this body of leadership, signified by these 25 men, is standing there. And they, there's, here's their two ways that they are coming against the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, when the children of Israel are taken into captivity. As they are taken into captivity, you have this verse. We've talked about it a number of times that everybody puts on their refrigerator, but sometimes remove it from context. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That word was spoken over people in chains going into slavery to the exiles that the people in Jerusalem said, those are the bad guys. God's getting rid of the bad guys. God's taking the bad guys from our midst. Remember, I told you, the Lord knows how to deliver the righteous and the wicked to judgment. And he delivered the righteous in the exile through exile. That's how God accomplished it. So they would say, Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 29.5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Jeremiah was saying, give up, go to Babylon, live your lives. You don't have to die here. So what were these leaders saying? The time is not near to build houses. We're going to see victory. We're not going to have to leave Jerusalem. This is where God lives. This is God's country. We will never fall. So they were speaking against the prophetic word of Jeremiah. The second part, they said, was the city is the cauldron and we are the meat. They're describing a meal. And in describing the meal, the cauldron, the pot, this is a, a stew. And so they're saying we're the best part of the meal, those of us who are still here. We're the meat. You know, nobody cares about the carrots. Nobody cares about the taters. Everybody wants the meat. Nobody dip, dips in to a pile of stew and hopes all they pull, pull out is, is peas and carrots. Well, if you do, I'll pray for you. <laughs> We dip in and we want to find that big chunk of roast. We want to enjoy that just melt in your mouth piece of meat. And so here these leaders are saying, hey, we're the best part of the stew. The bad stuff in the stew has gone. The city is the cauldron. This is where the stew is made. And we're the very best part of the city. We're the very best part of this. And so they're speaking against God's prophetic word that was coming through Jeremiah. So Ezekiel sees it. And it says, therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. And the spirit of the Lord fell upon me. And he said to me, thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. So the Lord is saying to Ezekiel, this is what they think. This is how they see their circumstances. This is why they're constantly fighting against God's word that would have preserved life in Jerusalem. But the rebellion continued until they were robbed of life. Because when we studied the book of Proverbs, do you remember what the book of Proverbs said? The book of Proverbs said there's two paths you can take. One leads to life, one leads to death. And the whole way down the path of death, you have God and his prophets calling people to change your direction. 
But the stubborn and the rebellious continue down the road. When we get to the end of the road and the consequences of that road come to bear upon us, it's hard to shake your fist at God. That's why the Bible declares righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Because the call to, to turn, to change, to repent had gone out all along the journey. So the Lord says, I know the spirit of the Lord is upon Ezekiel. He says, I know the thoughts of these leaders. Verse 6, you have multiplied your slain in the city. This is what God is saying. These people don't have to die. But because of your stubbornness and because of your rebellion, you are leading them to destruction. And they are following you. They are following you in this. It says... You have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat, and this city is a cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. So he's saying the ones who have died are better off than you. The ones who die in the streets, they're, they're better off than you. They're the meat. You are all going to be taken out of the cauldron. They're not going to live in Jerusalem. You guys know how the story ends, right? They fight and they fight and they fight and then finally they're totally conquered and then the exile is taken, the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is laid waste, there's nothing left but rubble. There's a small group of people that, that, that Babylon leaves behind and as soon as Babylon gets away, that small group of people start infighting and kill each other and the small group left of that small group still has Jeremiah, and they go to Jeremiah and say, Jeremiah, what should we do? Where should we go? And Jeremiah says, it's okay, we can stay here. And they say, no, we're going to go to Egypt. And Jeremiah says, if you go to Egypt, you're all going to die. And they said, oh, okay. And they did what they always did. They never listened to Jeremiah. They packed their bags, went to Egypt, and they all died. Rebelled all the way to the last. And so the Lord lays out to them, he lays out to them, look, this is, this is, you have multiplied the slain. You have created the problems. Uh, the decisions you make have only multiplied the problems. In verse 8, you have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord. I will bring you out of the midst and give you into the hands of foreigners, and they will execute judgments upon you, and you will fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So the next prophecy that the Lord gives through Ezekiel, he says, here's that prophecy. These guys, you want to know, I'm the Lord. They're not going to stay in Jerusalem and they're not going to stay in Israel. And they're going to face judgment outside of Israel, which is where? Egypt, where they run. So just like, just like history declares it, <clears throat> God spoke it. He spoke history before it occurred. Uh, and then he says in verse 11, The city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel. You will know I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, not obeyed my rules, have, but have acted according to the rules of the nations around you. So Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations to bring the nations into a place where they would come to learn about Yahweh. But instead... They were defiled by the nations around them and they filled the place where people could come and learn about Yahweh with idols. How was it different when Christ came? 
Do you remember? Christ comes through the eastern gate. He's going to walk into the temple area. And he's going to walk into the court of the Gentiles. The court of the nations. The place where the nations are able to come and experience who Yahweh is. And understand what Yahweh is about. But what did he find there? In the court of the nations, in the court of the Gentiles, it was filled with money changers. With people buying and selling. So that a person coming as a Gentile to learn about Yahweh couldn't even do so. Because if he came in, the whole area was a marketplace. What did Jesus do? He cleansed it. Right? He overturned the tables. He drove the money changers out. And he said, this is my father's house. And my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. So that the attitude of the nation of Israel to be the light that God said they would be, they weren't able to be that because they're just like you and me. So who becomes the light to lead us to Yahweh? Jesus does. Who becomes the light that draws the nations in? It's not Israel. Who's going to do it? Jesus does it. What did he say? I am the light of the world. You shall not walk in darkness. You want to find your way? How will you find it? Through Jesus. No man comes to the Father except by me, right? Where he becomes the, the lighthouse, if you will, that draws, that is the drawing of the nations. Israel is not drawing it. Now, Israel's who the Messiah came through. So, in a sense, you have that reality, right? Here's the light of Israel, it's Messiah. Okay, so it fulfills that regard, but for the most part, Israel as a nation never rose to the, to the expectation, if you will, of being the place that would draw people in. This is what the millennial reign of Christ is all about. Because when Christ sets up his millennial reign in Israel, in Jerusalem, as the light of the world, the Bible says that all the nations are going to come in. All the nations are going to come to to understand, to learn, to know. In the, in the kingdom, uh, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, as they as they gather. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20. So we see this gathering. So here we have this judgment. He's trying to let them know. You became like everybody else. You didn't, you didn't draw near to me. Instead, you were infected by. The same sin that everybody else has, which is why we need a Savior, yes? Which is why we need to have our sins purged, like Isaiah. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We're a mess. No different for us today than it was for them. Then we all have need of a Savior. We all need to be purged. And so it says in verse 13, And so it came to pass... While I was prophesying, that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. So here's what I want you to see. This is God providing confirmation that Ezekiel is his mouthpiece. Ezekiel is going to deliver a message to the exiles before cell phones. That Pelatiah has died in Jerusalem before anybody else can know. Now there's another group of exiles that are going to be coming, the last wave of exiles... And when they come, they will say, man, this is the craziest thing. On this day, Pelatiah, he just dropped dead. 
Oh, yeah, you want to hear something crazier? Ezekiel told us about it before it happened. He said he saw it. He saw Pelatiah just drop to the ground while he was prophesying in the Spirit of God before the 25 men that were gathered there. He said, <coughs> when he falls down on his face, it says, then uh, Ezekiel fell down on his face and cried out with a loud voice, and said, oh, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? So even Ezekiel is struggling with the idea that the remnant is in the refugee camp. Because if I'm in a refugee camp, I can't be beloved of God. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the... Okay, we'll just stop there for now. So God so loved the world. Does it say only if you're in your home? Does it say, does God love the world if they're in refugee camps? And what did he do? Because he loved the world, what did he give? His only begotten son, right? So he, he has made a way. So the point is, you and I have a tendency to look at our external circumstances and say, oh, I must be in a place of God's favor because things are going good. Or I must be in a place of disfavor because things are going bad. And the story of Ezekiel is, you can't always make that link. You can't always come to that conclusion. Sometimes you're in a bad place and you're right where God wants you to be. Sometimes you're going through hard things and you're right where God wants you to be. Because God is accomplishing his purpose. And like we said about Hebrews, right? He is disciplining, not correcting you necessarily, not saying you were bad and I need to whoop you, but he is training you, preparing you for a mission field you can't even see. Ezekiel is there in the middle of this refugee camp in exile and he's thinking to himself, what do I do now? I was supposed to become a priest. You remember chapter 1? It was my 30th birthday. I'm supposed to become a priest today. Instead, the throne chariot of God appears to him and calls him as a prophet. And he begins to prophesy hope to a people who thought they didn't have any. And that is one of the things that God is pretty uh, consistently in the business of providing so Ezekiel falls on his face and he cries out, Lord, you're killing off the remnant. And so the Lord is going to say, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, listen to me. Your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem has said, go far from the Lord to us. This land is given as a possession. Listen to what he's saying. Ezekiel, all the people in Jerusalem say about your kinsmen, the guys you are living with, right now in his house, he's seated there with the, with the elders of Judah. They're waiting to hear a word from the Lord as the Spirit of God is moving in Ezekiel's life. And God is saying, your, your kinsmen, the people of the house of Israel that are gathered there in the refugee camp, these people in Jerusalem, they say... We're the true inhabitants of Jerusalem. God has given us this land. We're the remnant. All the bad people are taken away. And so he's declaring this to Ezekiel. He wants Ezekiel to understand. You are the remnant, Ezekiel. You are the hope of Israel. Not Jerusalem. Jerusalem's doomed. 
You're the hope. It's an important thing to remember. It's an important thing to hear. You are the hope. In these United States of America, the faithful who will gather still in houses of worship to lift up their eyes to the Lord and call upon His name are the hope for the next generation. They're the hope for where this nation goes. Not the, not the, the politicians, not the politics, uh, all the other stuff. It's going to be those who are gathered together with the remnant who will bring hope for the future. That's where the hope comes from. It won't be Trump part two or three or four or ten. It won't matter. If there's not an outpouring of the Spirit of God in the people of God that are focused on the Lord, that's where the hope will come. Those who may feel like our country has left us, they don't want us, we're the bad guys now. In fact, they would probably say it would be good to get an island and dump them all on the island and get rid of them and we'd be better off for it. That's the same attitude Jerusalem had for those taken in exile. Verse 16, therefore say, he's telling Ezekiel, this is what I want you to say. Thus says the Lord God, though I have removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, Yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries to where they have gone. So there are several things the Lord is saying. One, I have scattered you. I took you out of Jerusalem because I'm going to destroy this place. What did he do to Lot? You remember he came to Lot and he said, Lot, you got to get out of here. Because there's no hope for this place is coming down. This place is coming down. You got to go. The same thing God does in the remnant. He says to these exiles, I have scattered you and I am your sanctuary. You don't need the temple in Jerusalem. You don't need the nation of Jerusalem. You don't need the king of Jerusalem. What do you need? You need me. What do we need as a nation? Do we need better Republicans and better Democrats and better congressmen and maybe... We could use all that stuff. We need the Lord God Almighty. That's what we need. This is who we need. This is the declaration that Ezekiel's being told. Hey, I am what you need. I took you out of Jerusalem. I made you slaves. I put you in a refugee camp because you are the future and the hope for the nation. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord, Tell them this, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land. What is God saying to Ezekiel and the refugees? I'm going to give you back the land. You're the hope for the future. You're the remnant. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It's going to be burned with fire. It's going to utterly be destroyed because they won't stop rebelling. So that's coming down, and I will bring you back to the land. Verse 18, and when they come here, here's what God says, and when these exiles come here, they will remove all the detestable things and all its abominations. 
the exile accomplishes one really incredible thing. You see it in archaeology. Up to a point, you can find idols everywhere in Israel. And after the exile, you don't. They're gone. They don't go back to that. They leave that. They tear down the detestable things and the abominations. Are they perfect? No, they're people just like you and me. Did they still sin and fail? For sure they did. For sure they did. But this one thing they learned. No more idols. No more, no more idols, no more gods set up inside and around the temple. Listen to what the Lord now is promising for the future. And I will give them one heart. And I will give a new spirit that I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. So he gives a promise of the return to the land, the restoration of the nation, the promise of the removal of the idols and abominations. And then he speaks of the promise of regeneration. That promise is going to come through Christ. That's when regeneration is going to occur. That the history of the Old Testament ends at Chronicles. That's the end. You have Ezra and Nehemiah, which, which, which account for the return of the exiles, and it's done. Then, you're, then you read about the prophets, which are all talking about various times throughout the history of Israel. You have silence, silence, quiet. God's not saying anything. There's no active prophets for 400 years until John the Baptist shows up on the scene and begins once again to prophesy so the people wouldn't mean wouldn't miss the coming of messiah all history finishes at the exile they go to the exile nehemiah and ezra what do they tell the story of the return right the people return they rebuild the city with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other right beautiful picture of spiritual warfare over your family and and protecting the family and, and bringing the remnant back into the city. Now the remnant's back in the city. What are they back in the city for? To see the promise that God gave them for the regeneration which comes through Messiah. Because when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what does he do? In John chapter 3 it says that we are born again. What's another way to describe that? Your heart of stone is taken out. And God gives you a heart of flesh. It's the act of regeneration and the promise of relationship. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. I will give them a heart of flesh. They will walk in my statutes, keep my rules, obey them. They will be my people and I will be their God. So this is the, this is the restoration, the all-encompassing what Ezekiel is laying out for them. But as for those... Excuse me, whose hearts go after their detestable things, the abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their head, declares the Lord God. This place is coming down. Jerusalem is going to be a pile of rubble. It has been many times in history. It's been rebuilt, I think, more than it. Certainly, I'll tell you this the city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt more than any other city called the city of peace. It has also been destroyed more than any city called the city of peace. And she still waits for her king. And he is coming. 
and he will sit on that throne. He goes on and says, Now the cherubim lift up their wings, the wheels beside them. The glory of the God of Israel was over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. You go out the eastern gate, what mountain do you come to? You know the name of it. You just don't know it. It's called the Mount of Olives. In the middle of that, roughly, most people figure somewhere near the top of the Mount of Olives was a place called the Garden of Gatshmone, Gethsemane. And the Spirit of the Lord went out the eastern gate. That's the gate today when you go to Jerusalem that's sealed up. Because the Ottomans heard that the holy man said that one day the king's going to come back through that gate. So they blocked it up with blocks. So I'm sure that'll keep Jesus from coming. They also planted a, a cemetery in front of the door because they heard that holy men won't walk through a cemetery. And nobody had the guts to tell them that when Jesus walks through a cemetery, people don't stay dead. So... He went out the eastern gate, he went to the Mount of Olives, and the Spirit lifted me up, this is Ezekiel again, brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, to the exiles. So he's brought back to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me. So now he's out of the vision. And I told the exiles all the things the Lord had shown me. That's who he's supposed to deliver the message to, the people who were losing hope that they were the hope for God. For the future. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, Lord, that we can come to the book of Ezekiel, Lord, to study the prophecies, the visions, Lord, to try to comprehend and understand the things that, uh, Lord, your spirit speaks through the word, that we can, uh, that we, we, we recognize, Lord, that, that comprehending and understanding everything about Yahweh, we're never going to come to, we're never going to understand it all. But we can see the big picture. We can see the rebellious hearts of men and the, and the heart of God looking for and accomplishing a redemption for them. Bringing through the remnants, separating the righteous from the wicked in judgment. Bringing, God, your perfect plan to bear so that on that perfect time, Christ would come for the ungodly, for men who were separated from God, who could be restored by faith in him. The same way that the glory of God departed, the glory of God returned. And the glory of God was carried outside of the city and nailed to a cross. And he spoke these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he ushered in justification through faith. He began the perfect work of sanctification in the lives of believers. We look forward to the promise of being glorified together with him. He has accomplished what we could not do. And all the history in the Bible shows us our inability to accomplish it. We need a Savior. His name is Christ the Lord. So, Father, I thank you for your Son given for me. 
who has worked this perfect work of salvation in and through us. God, I pray that you be glorified and magnified as we put our hope and trust in you. Help us learn the lessons we need to learn. See the things we need to understand so that we don't repeat the mistakes of those who have gone before us. Lord, may we learn from history. May we be prepared as a people, perhaps, who are looking at our own exile and wanting to know, like the men of Issachar, the signs of the times and what was needed. God, I pray you be glorified as you open our eyes and as we walk in obedience to your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.